0: Most Jews feel that the Kotel is not a place for them. They feel much more comfortable at Disney World than they are in Jerusalem. The last time I checked, Disney World is not your mother's home. It's not your father's home. And it's tragic if we, who are the keepers of the mesora, haven't made sure that coming home is as welcoming as Mickey in Disney World.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, there were two bar mitzvahs and a bat mitzvah taking place at the Robinson's Arch section of the Kotel, which has been designated for egalitarian prayer services by the Israeli government. Very sadly, a relatively large number of religious zealots attempted to interrupt and disrupt them in various ways, causing a massive desecration of the divine name and doing nothing productive other than causing additional hatred, this time perhaps not baseless hatred, in the weeks leading up to our commemoration of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. It's sickening and represents the opposite of how the Torah expects us to behave, regardless of our opinions about the halachic validity of egalitarian prayer. This sad story presents an opportunity to discuss the ways that Orthodox Jews, who likely would not pray in an egalitarian davening, should relate to the new egalitarian section of the Kotel. So in this week's episode, I first speak to Laura and David, who was the photographer at one of the bar mitzvahs, to find out exactly what happened that day at the Kotel. Following that conversation, I talked to Rabbi Kenneth Brander and then Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein to find out their attitudes and feelings regarding the presence of an egalitarian section at the Kotel. After both of those interviews, I'll offer my own brief remarks. Laura Ben-David is an award-winning photographer, as well as an author, bridge builder, settler, freelancer, and the director of marketing at Shave Israel. Laura Ben-David, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: So about two weeks ago, you were the photographer at a bar mitzvah at the Kotel. And I'll leave it at that. Can you tell me what happened?
2: Yeah. So it was at the Kotel, but at the egalitarian section of the Kotel, which is open to any way of, of praying. And this was a conservative family, a small little group, very sweet We uh, Americans. We went down there. And as soon as we got there, we noticed that there were a couple of religious-looking boys that... Didn't look like they belong, didn't look like they had any particular role down there. And we thought that was strange. And we ignored that. Were they
1: hanging out in the egalitarian section?
2: Yeah, they were sitting there. They were just kind of sitting there. They looked like they were waiting, which I guess they were. And um, how old were they? I would say those particular kids were maybe 17, something like late teens. Late mm-hmm, late okay. Teens. Um, and... It was strange. We noticed it. We looked at it. We thought "Hmm, this is a strange thing that they just, they didn't seem to belong. We started our, our ceremony that, you know, I was photographing the kid was, was leaning, was very nice. There were two other ceremonies taking place um, simultaneously at other areas of the, the platform. And suddenly some more boys joined those kids and started really harassing the everybody, um, like really harassing, they came with with whistles that they literally blew nonstop, like into your ears. Like they came mm-hmm. really, really close, and like close enough that I was literally able to, if I could, if I was fast enough, pull the whistles out of their mouths. They were that close, and yelling, shouting, and you know, saying really nasty things. Um, and and the, by the way, the ages of these kids were not the same age as those kids that we saw. They were ranging from pretty young, I would say, around bar mitzvah age to 20s. Um, so people were, who were
1: already young adults were there too?
2: Yes, definitely mm-hmm. there were adults, they were there. And, you know, and you could tell that there were some who were the ringleaders and some who were just, you know, coming along for the ride. And they weren't one particular, um, like, religious brand. Like, it wasn't like they were all, like, you know, black hat or... They, they, they were different kinds of clothing. They seemed to come from different places, different communities, different yeshivas.
1: Now how many approximately were there altogether? And how many were there who were, say, over 18? Your best guesstimate.
2: Right. Um, I, I would say, and we, we discussed this and looked at pictures and tried to figure it out because they, they started streaming in. Like there were just more and more of them. There we're probably about 30 or 40 of them altogether at various times. Um, uh, it, was, it was a pretty even split of the ages. We, there were definitely um, a good six, seven, eight adults, Um, You know, and then and then there were a number who were, let's say, 18, 19. And and then, you know, so there was like a pretty wide, uh, pretty even spread of ages.
1: And were they all participating equally, meaning were some of them there just to watch what the others were doing or were they all part of this protest or whatever you want to call it?
2: they were all pretty active they were all they had, each had different roles some of them had um signs that they were like holding you know saying that like you know that like basically um putting down this, this particular brand of Judaism by the way it was very much against reform which i noticed from the things that they were saying like it wasn't these kids i think i think that all of the kids who were having their bar mitzvahs were conservative but they were very very specifically anti-reform. Like they were saying things to me, calling me it was all in Hebrew and calling me, you know, reform. And I was like, I'm not reform. And they're like, oh, you're not. And then they would like hold back. Like that particular person, but then other ones, you know, of course, didn't hear that conversation. It was so offensive. It was so offensive. Like they really um it, it was like racist to reform. Now you mentioned whistles
1: mm-hmm. and you mentioned signs. I yeah. also saw a picture of some kid blowing his nose with a page of yeah. the SIDOR that was being used over there. So yeah, what, what sure. other, that's
2: you disgusting. didn't take that one. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I actually did not see that. I, I probably would have not been able to hold back from taking physical action because that's just horrific. Um, it, well, one thing is that the, the signs, everything that they were doing was very deliberate and very planned. Like they weren't, they didn't just take signs and write on it this morning, you know, and like hold them up. These were um, cardboard signs that were printed with um, attached to strings that they had around their wrists, so you couldn't just rip them out of their hands. You couldn't pull them off because they were attached. You couldn't tear them; they were they were hard. So
1: mm-hmm. this
2: is clearly something that was like organized and planned and and paid for too um yeah what do you mean
1: paid for i mean you by think it was organized had, by somebody else
2: somebody organized it the signs were printed i mean this like they like they this wasn't something that they threw together in arts and crafts like they this was something that they have that they expect people to try to pull this out of their hand this is something planned and organized
1: and apart from signs and whistles and of course the nose blowing insanity what specific things did they do was there any violence for example
2: they seem to know exactly how far they could go within the limits of the law. Now, mind you, when I think about this, and this is really mind mind blowing. Within the limits of the law, okay, so they were coming. We're a nice group of people, or we're minding our business, doing our thing. And they're literally surrounding us, blowing whistles in our ears that are, my ears were ringing, all of our ears were ringing for hours afterwards. I mean, if that's not assault, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And like coming like in your face and screaming and shouting profanities and calling us Nazis and animals, it was really horrific. So what I'm saying it's within the law because... According to the police, there was nothing they could do because they didn't cross that line of what of of touching us, of hitting us. I'm not sure, although they were trying to go to us into doing things to them so that they could say arrest them. I, I pulled a whistle out of somebody's mouth when he was blowing it in my ear, and they like start screaming at the police that I like touched him or assaulted him because so I took his whistle and that they should arrest me. So they were clearly well, like they knew a lot about what they, they were well do.
1: educated about what the line of the law is yeah. actually,
2: but. Then I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. If this same thing was happening, let's just say at the men's section of the hotel, let's just say, imagine that at any place, at any point, at any time of day, any group of people, male or female, would come streaming into the men's section and surround any group of having a bar mitzvah blowing whistles. Would the police really just say, oh, they're acting within the limits of the law? I don't really think so.
1: Right. So let's talk about the police a little bit, because people have complained, as you are now, about what the police did or didn't do. Mm-hmm. So were there policemen there for this entire time? Did they show up and leave? What happened with the police?
2: So I, I'm pretty sure that it started out there were no police, that they were like just the, you know, like a security person or a couple security people. And they called police. But the police were totally um, they were overwhelmed in terms of numbers. Like the, there were, you know, dozens of these these boys and young men. And there were, you know, a couple of police people and then like a few more like came and then more than the Takvul um, like Magav, you know, they came, uh, border police, but it, at, at no point were there enough of them to really handle the situation um, easily, but they didn't really try. And when we, when we, they were spoken, when we complained to the police, we said, well, like, do something. And they basically said that they, they, they couldn't, like, as long as they didn't, to send into violence, like actual, you know, physical violence, um, there was nothing they could do. I don't know under whose orders. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know why the rules would be different in a place like that versus, as I was saying, in a place like the Coteau or anything else. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a situation where literally the the, the just the public disturbance was just so tremendous. I, I just can't see that that would be something acceptable in any normal society.
1: Yeah, you made a really good point by saying, imagine a group of people came to the hotel in the main mm-hmm. plaza and started blowing whistles at an ear-splitting volume. Yeah. It's hard to believe that someone wouldn't have stepped in. The police wouldn't have stopped it on some, on some level. Yeah. It's almost impossible to believe.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's mind-blowing.
1: Meanwhile, as this is going on, did the bar mitzvah or the various occasions that were happening, did they all stop or did they continue as planned just with ear-splitting noise behind them?
2: So I could only speak for the bar mitzvah I was shooting, um, but I I think they were all similar. They were amazing. This kid, he just kept, he was literally in the middle of reading from the Torah and he just kept on. And like, I was getting all like frustrated and I just wanted to go and like, you know, punch people. I was so mad. I also really wanted to protect my clients. Like I, I felt, you know, they're Americans and here I am, I'm Israeli. I felt a sense of responsibility and I just, I was so angry. And a few of the attendees, and it was a very small group, but a few of the attendees w- would occasionally get triggered. Like the grandfather at one point got really triggered and was really angry and upset. And, and I just felt terrible. But the boy himself, he did not stop. He did not falter. Just kept on reading from the Torah. You couldn't really hear him, but thankfully he had a, a mic hooked on to his lapel and it was videoed. And uh, at one point, the videographer put, put the headphones on me so I could hear and it really picked up the boy's voice and nothing. I mean, you know, you can hear it as background, but you heard the boy perfectly. So at least that.
1: OK, that's a good thing. How did the event end? Did it just fizzle out or did it continue going until everyone left the area?
2: Yeah, it continued. I mean, they were shouting profanities at us as we were leaving. It was terrible. Even as
1: you were leaving, even at the end
2: even at the end, even when we were literally just like walking out, they were shouting profanities at us and saying like, and calling us really horrible things. It was really, really upsetting.
1: I should have asked this earlier. How did it start? Meaning you said you began the davening with no incident at a certain point. It began what triggered them, so to speak, so that they began this protest. Was there a specific moment that they began?
2: They showed up just when they showed up. I, I thought they were there like the
1: entire time.
2: So those couple of kids were there. I, it, I'm guessing that they were like the scouts that they like, you know, Mm -hmm. must have like messaged their friends or something and said, okay, it's time to come. I am guessing, I mean, I can't say that for sure, but it seemed like they had no other purpose being there, but they look like we watched, we saw them streaming down and we're thinking, okay, here comes trouble. There's nothing that that large group of, of, you know, Haredi, very religious boys and young men could have, there's no purpose that they would have here. Um, So there's, here comes trouble and, and trouble came. And they literally just came in and started shouting and with the whistles and being in our face, with their signs it was terrible.
1: And when you mentioned that they're Haredi, I understood that it wasn't just Haredi boys. I thought it was also people from the national religious sector. Is that true?
2: Um, Like, it's really hard to define, like, you know, who is what, and you know, like not everybody was wearing black and white. But there was nobody who looked um, who I would define as national religious, like maybe they were. Hardal or whatever, like you know, where you draw those lines and who fits into what boxes, I don't know. But they were all very religious, you know. However, they all define themselves. I, I couldn't tell you.
1: Now, Laura, I know you're not a reporter, but because you were there, and I know that you actually submitted pictures to the Times of Israel and explained what happened, have you found out subsequently who was behind it? Was it an organized group that you know of, or is it basically just a group of thugs who got together and did this?
2: So I've heard different things. And you're right. I'm not a reporter and I didn't do, you know, the due diligence to find out exactly what. But I did speak to um, uh, to the reporter who does the religious uh, services and stuff, you know, first times of Israel. Um, It does seem like there are some yeshivas and seminaries. There were no girls, this particular thing who literally send their kids to to you know on Rosh Chodesh specifically for the women of the wall, although this was not that. Um, but I did speak to people who are you know, firsthand reports of in general that these, not this particular one, where they literally send their students to to come, whether it's for silent protest or to actually protest. It does seem like they are coming from somewhere. I don't know how high that level goes, if it's like actually like some, you know, some you know rabbi or principal or if it's lower level. But it's definitely organized. That's there's no doubt.
1: And finally, Laura, what was the response after it was all over of the American family that you were involved with after they had gone through this really, really disturbing and upsetting experience at their son or grandson's bar mitzvah?
2: I I think they handled it really well. I mean, they were clearly upset. This was very upsetting, um, very shocking. And they even thought about the fact that it is Rosh Chodesh and that there was this possibility. They thought that they would avoid it because it was pretty early in the morning and it was in the egalitarian section, which like, why would they bother people there? but they, they overall, they handled it well. Like they, you know, kept their spirits up. They were very proud of their son. They were just like, okay, this is what we're dealing with. We're just going to have the best bar mitzvah we can. And I was really pretty impressed with the way that they handled it. I don't think I would have handled it so well.
1: All right. Well, Laura Ben David, I appreciate this. This is very comprehensive. And now I have a better understanding of what happened that day. So thank you for joining me.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander is president and Rosh HaYeshiva of the Or Torah Stone Network of 30 educational institutions, leadership development programs, advocacy, outreach, and social action initiatives. Prior to making Aliyah, Rabbi Brander was vice president for university and community life at Yeshiva University, taught rabbinics at the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary, and served as the inaugural David Mitzner Dean of Yeshiva University's Center for the Jewish Future. Rabbi Kenneth Brander, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you for having me. Rabbi Brander, we all condemn, I'm sure, the protests and any violence that takes place at the egalitarian section of the Kotel at Robinson's Arch. But that actually opens up the larger question of how Orthodox Jews should relate to that plaza and egalitarian prayer at the Western Wall. So as Orthodox Jews, we think that mixed prayer is a violation of halachic norms. So Rabbi Brander, what should our attitude be towards that section at Robinson's Arch?
0: First of all... Uh, Let's start with the first part of your question, which wasn't a question. We all condemn. Are you sure about that? How many post gim have you heard condemn that action? So let's just start with that. Kabatabrius, the responsibility of treating other people with decency and respect. We haven't heard many people speak about it. And that's tragic because that should be the basics the entire area of the Kotel by the southwestern er corners, you can see the destruction of the Pesimigdash. You can see the Herodian rocks that fell down. You can see the Makom where the levium would call people together before Shabbos and things of that nature. And yet those shattered rocks and the burnt marks on the walls don't remind us that we have to treat other people with respect. So first thing I would like to just simply challenge is the fact that we haven't seen a plethora of people speak out against us. If there was milk and meat uh, being served somewhere in Yerushalayim together, we would hear many more people. And I would be one of those people that would speak out against that. But I think that when we mistreat other human beings, that's also a that's also biblical prohibition that requires our response.
1: Now to Robert Brander, can I ask you something just about that one point, yeah. since you did raise it? I think it's very important. Wouldn't some people probably argue, it's not that people don't condemn it, it's that they would say, those people who did that are so far away from anything that we believe in, we have no need to condemn them, these are not my students, these are not people who represent my camp. So when you say that most post haven't condemned it, perhaps the reason isn't anything as sinister as they're not caring, so much as thinking... Obviously, it's absurd for them to do that. It's not part of my world, and therefore there's no need for me to speak out. How would you answer that?
0: I agree with you. I think that the majority of post or the majority of rabbinic leaders or lay leaders would agree that this is a horrific act. We find people speaking about issues that have nothing to do with their core constituencies, and they speak out against it because they're troubled by it. We've become so anesthetized to the way we treat people who do not engage in Judaism, the way we have been taught, and quite honest, the way that I believe the Masora teaches us. You know, I, I was born in Mount Clemens, Michigan. I was born in Mount Clemens, Michigan, because there was a famous case, the Baruch Litvin case, where Baruch Litvin, a lay leader, brought a synagogue to the Supreme Court of Michigan when uh, they were thinking of removing the chisa and after Baruch the saint he wrote a book the sanctity of the synagogue and after Baruch Litvin you know did that they needed to find a rabbi that could heal the community back together and Saloveitchik asked my father should live and be well and my mother go so into Mount Michigan and help re-knit the community so to say and I've lived with my whole life, the importance of machitza, the importance of tradition and commitment to a misorah, to tevila. It's not lost upon me. I even wrote the introduction, the book, The Sanctity of the Synagogue that Baruch Litvin wrote on this whole issue with tshuvas from Bidolei, Hador, from that generation, the great leaders of that generation. But what is not also lost on me and or on anyone else is the fact that we have to treat other people, other Jews with respect. And I think that in Israel and for that matter, other places, but in Israel in particular, um, we sometimes forget that. Now would you like me to answer? I'm sorry. Now I'd like to hear the second half of the question. Yes. Thank you. Let's be clear. No one is endorsing that type of prayers. I've never davened. I've never prayed in the service of a reform conservative in my life. I've never participated in a Reform Conservative prayer service in my life. Uh, I'm 60 years old. I, I, I don't think I ever will. But the bottom line is that the halacha is important for us to recognize a few different bullet points. Number one is the kotel where people daven in a halachically appropriate fashion. I think it is totally forbidden to change that area in any way, shape, or form to in any ways limit the ritual prayer services consistent with the halachot, the norms and mores of the masorah. I think it's totally forbidden, and I would be the first one against that in a respectable way. But I am also recognize the history of the Kotel. And that is that if you Google any of your thousands of listeners, Google Western Wall, 1700s, Western Wall, 1800s, Western Wall, 1100s, Western Wall, 1200s. You won't see a machitza there because until a certain, prior to a certain point, it was what we would call an informal prayer location. People came to see Hillem, Rabbi Benjamin of Tadella in the 1100s, speaks about people coming there to have what I would call an informal prayer service. And, and I think it's important to recognize. So the mukom, the place in which there is formal prayer, I think that you can't change that. But the, Kotel egalitarian prayer location was never used as a prayer location, and therefore it doesn't have that halachic stature or standard. And therefore, while I it's not my type of prayer service, it's not your type of prayer service. Bottom line is, I'm not willing to throw out other Jews because they pray differently, because. Jerusalem is the only city in Israel, or one of the only cities in Israel, as the Rambam, as Maimonides tells us, in the laws of and his laws on the Jerusalem and the temple area, that was not given over to tribes, because we didn't want there to be turf wars. We wanted it to be a place where everyone could come together. And so for that matter, the same way that the extended Kotel Plaza, you know, that, that big place where everyone hangs out, you know, I'll meet you there, I'll meet you there, even though there, there are sometimes formal prayer services we say it doesn't have the holiness of the area of where there is what I would call the new over the past 100 years prayer location and therefore you know we've all been to services in the IDF that take place there the IDF won't have a prayer, it won't have a ceremony in the kotel itself because that would be compromising a prayer location, but that's not a prayer location, the temple, the Kotel Plaza. The same thing is true with the egalitarian prayer space. It is not considered by the Orthodox community a prayer space. And therefore, I see no reason to rob another Jew of the opportunity to create their own rendezvous with God. And I think for that reason, not only am I on solid, what I would call, very detailed halachic ground, but also the meta. Halachic issues. And I think, as you said, most post agree with that point, but they just felt that because it's so obvious, there was no need to speak about it.
1: And Rabbi Brander, I have heard people suggest, numerous people suggest, that the entire idea of non-Orthodox prayer, and I mean specifically prayer associated with, for example, the Reform and Conservative movements at a spot by the Kotel, is a bit of an anachronism because the Reform and Conservative movements ostensibly don't believe in a restoration of the sacrificial service. I actually checked the Shalom Sidor, which is a conservative Sidor. And while it does mention returning to the Beit HaMikdash, it takes out references as best as I could see to any sort of temple sacrificial service in the tefillah. So they would say they don't even care about the Kotel. I'm not arguing this point. I'm quoting people I've heard who have said this. The Kotel itself shouldn't even matter to them since they don't believe in a sacrificial service. And accordingly, this is more a PR stunt than something authentic. How would you respond to that?
0: Uh, it's the first time I've heard that. I mean, not that I disagree with your uh, understanding of the issues of Note. I would just say, and 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 in no means to compare them in any way. And let me say that again: in no means to compare it in any way. You know, Rav Cook discusses also whether what type of forms of sacrifices there will be in the third base of Mikdash. It doesn't mean that Rav Cook, who writes and bemoans the fact that we don't have a base of Mikdash, doesn't totally engage in it. That's number one. Number two is, I think you have to look at top-down politics and bottom-up politics. I don't know the reform conservative politics, if this is a PR stunt or not. I do know, and I've had the privilege of meeting many serious reform and conservative Jews, many serious ones, who look at the Kotel as the place where they can connect to God, no different than you and me. And it's those people I believe we have to find a place for. It's those people who donate the ambulances in Yerushalayim and all over Israel. It's those people who go to APAC conventions and lead AIPAC to make sure that when you and I need to run into our safe rooms, because there are scuds over our homes, that there's an iron dome protecting us. I don't know of anybody who's ever said, you know what, I'm not going to go into an ambulance because I'm going to check the, the person who dedicated it. They're not praying the way I'm praying. I'm not using that ambulance. I'm not using that CAT scan machine or that MRI machine that they donated in Hadassah or Sharetzedeh. I'm just saying that if we want the Jewish people to view Israel, all of the Jewish people. And by the way, the egalitarian prayer space is not just a prayer space for the Reform and Conservative. It's for the vast majority of Jews. May not be affiliated with any denomination. Now, of course, many of those participate fully in what I would call the main prayer space, the Orthodox prayer space, and and Baruch Hashem, you know, most of the time they're always welcome there. There's always a crazy or so who thinks he's God's policeman and, and schools them in ways that are inappropriate. But the bottom line is, I don't think it's just for a reform conservative. I think it's for people who wanna pray a little differently. Again, it's not a prayer service that I concur with. I'm just not willing in a place that does not have the the halakhic status, the religious status of a synagogue. I'm not willing to throw those people out the same way that I'm not willing to dishonor a reform a conservative synagogue in any community uh, in the United States or anywhere else. And the same way there are plenty of people who make your comment, who have no problem having their weddings of their children in those locations, despite whatever uh, literature there may be that speaks out against that.
1: Robert Brander, what you just said now about going into a safe room that was sponsored by a reformed Jew or using an ambulance or an MRI machine that was paid for by a conservative Jew leads me to the question of whether this is merely a practical necessity in order to not alienate Jews or even to bring Jews closer, or do you mean that perhaps we should encourage non-Orthodox Jews to use the egalitarian section? I don't mean as opposed to the Orthodox section, but to say we want more people to come. I believe that Rav Malamed said that we should try to allow and encourage Jews to use the egalitarian section, and if they want to use it more often, that's even better. Do you feel the same way?
0: I mean, I would have to reflect upon that a little bit more before I could answer that. Uh, You know, Rav Malamed Shlita is a major Talmud Chacham. If he said it, it would be difficult for me to disagree with it. I've had conversations with him on this issue. I've never heard him say that personally. I think that I'm a very pragmatic person at times. And I, at, the, at the current time, I see no difference in an approach between door number one that you're articulating and door number two that you're articulating. I think that at this point in time, we just need to let Jews know that we're open for spiritual business of all Jews. And at this point in time, most Jews, and again, the plural of anecdotes isn't data, and what I'm saying is anecdotes, most Jews feel that the Kotel is not a place for them. They feel much more comfortable at Disney World than they are in Jerusalem. The last time I checked, Disney World is not your mother's home. It's not your father's home. And it's tragic if we, who are the keepers of the Mesorah, haven't made sure that coming home is as welcoming as
1: Mickey in Disney World. On the Facebook group associated with this podcast, someone made a suggestion, which I found intriguing, saying that next Rosh Chodesh, which is presumably the next time there'll be protests of this nature, assuming they happen, that a group of Orthodox Jews should go and are encouraged to go to Robinson's Arch, not to participate in the service there, but instead to express support vocally and make sure that no thugs have the opportunity to go down and disrupt any sort of non-Orthodox service that's going on over there. And I was curious what you thought about that idea. I'm not asking you to endorse it. I'm not asking you to condemn it. But I'm curious if you think that's a good idea or part of the problem someone might say is, is that an implicit support of a specific type of davening that is anti-halachic and might go beyond the line of simply saying, we encourage you to daven here, but I'm not going to be a part of it.
0: I, too, received an email suggesting that. Personally, I think, uh, you know, doing it in two weeks from now doesn't give enough time to do it properly, not sure I would do it by Robinson's Arch, but I think the idea of saying that that we're all welcomed, even though we have different, you know, approaches and paths, is a beautiful idea. And I would, you know, welcome to participate in that. Again, I, I don't think that you can put this together properly within two weeks. But uh, unfortunately, I think that there will be many more times that will, there will be challenges. And so, therefore, I would welcome something like that. Maybe, uh, you know, a time in which we're supposed to find a relationship with God and a relationship with other people. That's why some people translate the acrostic as not I am to God and God is to me. But it mentions the idea of helping other human beings, other Jews. I would welcome something like that. Again, I would be careful to make sure that I celebrate all prayer services uh, and not just an egalitarian prayer service, but all types of connection and welcome people to come to the Kotel and find their own way to uh, create a rendezvous with God.
1: Rabbi Brander, one final question on that same topic about allowing every person to find his or her way to rendezvous with God. What does it mean to vocally or publicly support non-Orthodox prayer while at the same time recognizing that it violates halakhic norms? I guess what I'm asking is how do we balance the ideas of pluralism on the one hand, or perhaps acceptance of other people's ways that are not our own, with also saying that we believe this is actually a violation of halakhic norms and therefore something which should not be encouraged? It's just a very hard needle to thread. I'm wondering how you would suggest we do that.
0: First of all, leadership and Judaism is all about nuance. We, we don't live in a binary world in our personal lives, and we don't live that definitely communal life. So, for example, when Rabbi Salavechik, um in the 70s, 80s, uh, supported the Rabbinical Council of America's engagement and leadership in the synagogue conference, in which leaders rabbinic leaders of all streams of Judaism got together to discuss major issues. Rabbi Soloveitchik was the strongest advocate against conservative reform prayer services. He, has made, he made some very strong statements, but at the same time, he never mistreated leaders from the reform and conservative movement. He never ignored them. He never spoke against, negative against them. And he encouraged one of his brightest students, Rabbi Fabian Schoenfeld, the blessed memory, to lead the synagogue conference so that there can be an opportunity for all streams of the Jewish people to get together. This is an example of nuance. Yes, there is nuance. Yes, we need to explain to our children that we are the keepers of a mesorah. The keepers of a mesorah also includes a haftalarecha Kamoha. As the Nitzib says in his introduction to Sefer Beratius, Rebnav Toi Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the architect of, of Volazion, of the Harvard of O Yeshivot, that Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are blessed because they know how to treat other people with respect. And the destruction of the temple was when people in the name of God, this are his words, when people in the name of God decided to mistreat other Jews that were not, abiding by all the religious precepts. But what destroyed the second commonwealth is not that they didn't abide by the religious precepts. It was because the way Jews treated other Jews. And it's hard hard to sit by and watch that happen, especially when you see it not just happening at the Kotel, but you see it happening, you know, with Agunot. You know, I have a, a blessed group of, people that work at Orta Stone that deal with agunod, we deal with around 60, 70 agunod at a clip in front of the rabbinical courts. They're also, we, we're not treating people with respect even though we're committed to an halakhi process. And I think that these are just symptoms of a larger issue. And, and, and that's why, you know, Rabbi Shachter once shared with us that it used to be the custom in Europe to buy soft covered keynote booklets, the booklets we use on Tisha B'av, because a soft covered book is not a book you need a long time. And there was even certain places that would take their books at the end of Tisha B'av and put them in the Geniza in a place to discard holy objects because you don't need it next year. But it seems to me the way we're acting towards other people, we should be buying hard covered keynote booklets because we're not gonna get rid of them so fast. And I- I'm into buying soft covered ones.
1: Well, Rabbi Kenneth Brander, I appreciate your words of wisdom, and thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein is the founding editor of and regular contributor to Cross Currents, a popular blog of Torah and current affairs. Dozens of his essays have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, The National Law Journal, FoxNews.com, and a host of Jewish and general printed and electronic media. He serves on the editorial boards of the Orthodox Union's Jewish Action and the online journal of community responsibility, Klaal Perspectives. Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. My pleasure. To ask probably an obvious question, can you give me your impression, your feeling about those protests that took place a little over two weeks ago at the Kotel at the egalitarian section?
3: I I think uh, in one word, it would be nauseated, which is not a good place to be the evening before a kindness. Uh yeah, I I I there's there's nothing to add to to that feeling of is this the way Yiddishkeit is supposed to be? Whatever your position is. Uh and and I'm no fan of Women of the Wall and uh, some of the things that go on there. But but this was horrible, horrible. It was a terrible blot on the stain of contemporary
1: Yiddishkeit. Then Let's go directly into the concept of an egalitarian prayer section at Robinson's Arch at the Kotel. So as Orthodox Jews, obviously, we believe that mixed prayer is a violation of halacha. So what should our attitude be towards a section of the Kotel that is set up to do something which is an explicit violation of halacha?
3: We certainly can't. We can't be happy with it. We can't. uh, We can't cheer it on. We can't support it. Uh, And we should look for an effective compromise. Uh, because what goes on every month is an ongoing chil It doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't do good for the kedusha of the Kotel. It doesn't do any good for the, politi- for the people playing political theater uh, with, uh, with Kotel. Uh, HaKotel. Uh, we should be looking for some kind of a compromise. Of course, not everything can be uh, offered in a compromise. I-, I, can't, uh, I can't speak for the powers that be and where they draw the line. Uh, We do know that a number of years ago, um, there was a compromise worked out by Natan Sharansky. And at the time, there was uh, pretty much wall-to-wall acceptance, begrudging acceptance. There was acceptance within the Orthodox world, within the Haredi world. Uh, That changed. Uh, It changed for reasons I still have not been able to ferret out. I think that what happened is that uh, the other side uh, immediately upped the ante and uh, convinced people on the uh, on the on the Haredi side that uh, giving in on this issue was going to lead to further decline in the position of of the Kotel as a as a Mocum Kodesh.
1: So let me back up because I'm a little bit confused about something that you said when you said it's a Chilul Hashem. Are you referring to the egalitarian prayer plaza or are you referring to the women of the wall? What specifically do you mean?
3: The the Chilul Hashem is the way it plays out uh, every month. I I, uh, put more of the fault on the uh, coming in as the provocateurs uh, than I do on the people responding, but there's plenty of blame in the way the provocateurs from women of the wall are met irresponsibly by people who have a little bit too much enthusiasm, zealotry and energy without thinking of how this is playing in front of the eyes of a watching world. That's the Chilu HaShem. No matter what the, no matter what the issues are, to, to watch Jews fighting each other over seemingly over the, uh, over over the right of people to, to pray with uh, using, using uh, techniques that, uh, are not what we want our children to be using, is a chelal Hashem. And that's not taking any of the blame away from women of the wall, who every month come up with a new way of, uh, of, of, of trying to garner media attention and, and make their case.
1: Okay. So I do want to speak about women of the wall but in a different episode, and it will be an honor to have you back to talk about it then. Today, I want to talk about that egalitarian plaza at Robinson's Arch. I really want to concentrate primarily on that new section where the bar mitzvahs happened, where the rioters came and tried to undermine and actively stop and interrupt that egalitarian service. So is that section something which we as Orthodox Jews should support? I'm not talking about the primary Cotel Plaza. I mean, specifically this new section that was set aside at Robinson's Arch. Is that something which you would consider a good thing that it's there, given the need for compromise? It's not something where you or I would daven in. But is it something that we should celebrate? Is it something that we merely tolerate? Or is it something that we actively denigrate?
3: In a, in a perfect world, we would want every inch of every area that, that surrounded Hara Habayis. To be a mukham of Kadusha, that everyone in Klaudis Yisrael will serve Akkadish Hu in the same way. That's not where we are right now, and it's probably not what we're going to get to before Mashiach comes. So, on the one hand, it is an extension of the Kotel, but but we never used it as a base HaKnesses uh, since 19, 1967. Uh, Baruch Hashem, there were some wise people in 1967, immediately after after we, uh, we, we captured the, uh, the old city in Har Abayis, who immediately set it up as a shul, and that's a very important um, uh, point that we make in all of our, our argumentation, that since the time that Har uh, Habayit it has been a shul and operating as a shul. At the same time, it is true that the Kotel, Harabayas Habayis, are, are immensely important icons that have the capacity for uniting all kinds of Jews, including reform, conservative, humanistic, and everything, everything in between. And mm-hmm. it's it's such a terrible shame, as I, I wrote a couple of years ago, that those who are or pushing to, to tear down one mechitza are creating another mechitza. But I haven't answered your question directly. I think that I'm just speaking as a private citizen, I can't speak for Gadole Torah, and the answer should should lie with them. But this is a part of the kotel that, up until now, has been used mostly for tourists looking at the stones that fell in the time of uh, at the time of the Hurban. Uh, it was a place that you went to uh, on on Tisha B'av to increase your sense of korban. That it should serve as a as a place for non-kosher, halachically kosher davening or, or prayer is is a bit of a disappointment but it's not the same thing as what women of the wall are trying to do to the kotel plaza itself so if we had to compromise and we did a number of years ago uh it would not seem to me to be the end of the world to allow something there at the southwestern part at the robinson's arch
1: section of the of the culture but again i'm going to defer to to torah uh okay that's very fair then let me ask you once again in your opinion as a private individual, Rabbi Adlerstein, when you talk about it's something that we can tolerate, something that we can deal with because of the need to a non-Messianic world to have that sort of prayer there, would you say that we should encourage people who are not Orthodox, who otherwise are not going to go to the Kotel, to daven there the way that I believe, I don't want to put words in his mouth, the way that I believe Rav Melamed said that we should tell them they should come there and they should daven and if they need more space, we should increase the space, presumably not in the existing Beit Knesset of the Kotel is that something which you agree with that we should encourage additional prayer there? Because it's an interesting question. It's not halachic, but it is prayer.
3: I I would, I would not go that far. I would not encourage people to engage in a kind of prayer that we see as antithetical to halacha. What we should do is encourage people to pray at the Koto. Uh, Up until 1967, uh, we uh, went before, before 1948, where, where people long to be able to in at the Kotel in that, that narrow little alleyway and the British wouldn't allow you to sit down or blow a shofar, um, there, was no, there were no minyanim. Uh, now we have a place where we can daven, Baruch Hashem, with multiple, multiple, multiple minyanim. But remember that for hundreds of years, the Kotel was a place where people came as individuals to pour their heart out to the Rebun HaSholom. All kinds of Jews and at times non-Jews as well. That is what we should be encouraging. We should be telling people that this is a place where the custom of the Jewish people has been to approach the stones, pour your heart out to Hakadosh Baruch ask Him for what's important to you. Put a kvittel in the kotel if you want, but I would not. Uh, I, I would not look approvingly upon uh, telling others that. You know this is the particular right to which you subscribe you now have a place and go there and have your non-halachic or anti-halachic religious service there
1: let me extend it just a little bit if you don't mind in general how do you think that we should relate to non-orthodox streams of judaism streams of judaism that do not follow halachas as we follow it ourselves
3: is that a serious question
1: well, in other words, obviously, we're not going to go and trash them, but at what point do we encourage them in anything other than trying to be Bukhari of them? That's what I mean.
3: They are our brothers and sisters. We we are both, as Rosaloveitchik said in so many ways and so many, so many times, we are part of a nation, we're part of a halakhic community. So sometimes one function just seems to hit a, a roadblock and that's not working. But but to to see the beauty of the neshama of every Jew and not respond to it, uh, if you, you view people just as targets for Kirov, you're not going to get, you're not going to get very far. Uh, but but you respond to people with the, as the Chazonish himself said, to reach out to people, we have haava with 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 ropes of, of of love. Does anything more need to be said?
1: Okay, I certainly agree with that. I have another question for you, Rabbi Adlerstein. I'm curious about your opinion about this. This is an interesting question because I don't know if it's quite a political question or a halachic question or a policy question. Someone on the Facebook group associated with this podcast made an interesting suggestion that in the future, a group of Orthodox Jews, visibly Orthodox Jews, should go to Robinson's Arch for the next bar mitzvah that's there, let's say, to make sure that people who come and want to riot and blow whistles in their faces aren't able to do it and have a visibly orthodox presence saying, we do not approve of that, and we're going to defend you. Again, this is not referring to women of the wall. This is talking about the egalitarian prayer section. On the one hand, we certainly don't approve of the whistleblowers, so to speak, but we also don't necessarily want to be seen as saying, this is a halakhic form of tefillah. What would be your take if someone were to ask you if that's a good idea? Um...
3: On the face of it, I think it would be a good idea uh, it, as long as there was a way of expressing to people, look, w- this is not, not our form of dominating and this should not suggest that we we are, are modifying and, and uh, liberalizing our view of, of, of what communal prayer is. But we do, f- we do love you as fellow Jews. You are here with the sanction of the state of Israel and... We are very much pained by the actions of some of our co-religionists, and we, uh, we, we are here to try to do what we can to prevent a desecration of God's name.
1: Um, I, I can see that. Okay. Well, Rav Yitzhak Adlerstein it was an honor to host you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Great to be
3: here. Thank you.
1: After the three conversations we had today, where does that leave us? In some ways, it leaves me with more questions than answers. While I understand and respect Rabbi Adlerstein's feeling that we should not encourage additional prayer at Robinson's Arch, I'm not sure that prayer is in the same category as other mitzvot. If somebody doesn't blow the shofar with the notes prescribed according to Jewish law, he didn't fulfill the mitzvah, full stop. If someone eats matzah that isn't halachically matzah on Pesach, if it's made from potato flour instead of one of the five grains, for example, he has not eaten matzah. But is davening really the same thing? Is it true that davening in a non-halachic fashion is the same as not davening at all? Please don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that this is Rabbi Adlerstein's opinion. All Rabbi Adlerstein said is that we should not encourage non-halachic tefillah, and I really do understand that position. I don't think that we should extrapolate from that, however, that tefillah that is non-halachic is valueless. I'm inclined to think that prayer consists of two elements, a halachic form and the internal dialogue and relationship building with God. I'm not at all discounting the importance of the halachic form of prayer, and like both Rabbi Brander and Rabbi Adlerstein, I would not daven in a place that does not follow the halachic requirements of communal tefillah. But I don't believe that the second aspect of tefillah, dialogue with God, is worthless or worth denigrating, even when it takes place in a non-Orthodox setting. I think that all prayer from the heart is priceless. While I hope that all communal prayer eventually takes place in a halachically proper setting, I also think that we can't ignore that Jews talking to God in any setting even a setting with which we find fault remains a valuable enterprise and should be encouraged. 3 times a day we say Karov Hashem lechol lechol asher Vehemet. God is close to all who call to him, to all who call to him in truth. And Mr. David explains that in truth means that you say what you really believe, that you have authentic kavanah, that what comes out of your mouth is what's in your heart. It does not say that God is only close to those who pray halachically. Yes, I have heard many times the story of Rav Soloveitchik telling a questioner who wanted on Rosh Hashanah to hear the shofar and only had a non-Orthodox synagogue in his area, that it's better to forego the mitzvah of shofar than to go into a non-Orthodox shul while they're davening. I hear what that means. I hear what he's saying. I still don't think that that means that we should prefer that those same Jews who would not otherwise daven at all would be better staying home and doing nothing than praying in a non-Orthodox shul. Rav Salavechik was speaking to an Orthodox Jew and the choice was davening at home without shofar or going to a shul without a mechitza. I'm not sure he would say that the same idea applies to other non-Orthodox congregants whose choice is a conservative shul or no prayer at all. And needless to say, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm assuming that no one would drive to shul, which itself is a huge issue, but not relevant to my point. Let me quote Rav Aron Lichtenstein's atzal in an essay entitled Beyond the Pale, Reflections Regarding Contemporary Relations with Non-Orthodox Jews, and I thank Rabbi Todd Berman for providing the specific reference. Rav Aron writes, Does anyone imagine that if every non-Orthodox temple were to shut down forthwith, that on the morrow the membership would flock en masse to the nearest shul or Stiebel? If indeed temple attendance and affiliation are waning, and on the assumption that the absentees are beyond the reach of our own message, is there not beyond competition as much cause for dismay as for gratification? If we are concerned as we ought to be about the future spiritual destiny of our siblings, and if we are convinced that in certain areas a measure of comity could enhance it, might the option of cooperation not be at least worthy of consideration?" On another related note, I found it interesting that both Rabbi Brander and Rabbi Adlerstein reacted positively to the idea of demonstrating in support of those praying in the egalitarian section, even as we make it clear that as Orthodox Jews, we cannot join them. Eitan Friedman raised this possibility on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group, and perhaps now is the time to start planning for it more actively. Finally, I'm recording this on Shiva Arbatamus, the beginning of the three weeks leading to Tisha B'Av, which commemorate the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. As Rabbi Brander and Rabbi Adlerstein mentioned, the area of Robinson's Arch is noteworthy not only for the egalitarian prayer that takes place there, but for the remnants of the temple's destruction that can be witnessed in that area. As has been frequently noted, the second temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred. Rav Kukzatzal famously noted in his book, Orot HaKodesh, if we were destroyed and the world was destroyed with us through baseless hatred, we will again be built and the world will be built through us through baseless love. Ahavat Chinam. It may have become a cliche at this point, but we should take the idea to heart, that ahavat chinam, baseless love, means loving people with whom we disagree and disagree strongly, the same people that in the past we were likely to hate. Whatever our thoughts about the egalitarian section of the Kotel, we need to emphasize love and respect and acknowledge that while we believe fully in the halachic system, we dare not engage in theological arrogance by assuming that only we have a line to God. The best way to commemorate the korban in these weeks and prepare for the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash is by acknowledging the infinite worth of every human being and stopping any shallow assumptions that God somehow cares more about us than about them. As Rabbi Adlerstein said when I asked about relating to non-Orthodox streams of Judaism, is this a serious question? We need to bring back loving all of Am Yisrael to the center of our religious consciousness. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences